This podcast features adults using adult language, but you know, you gotta grow up sometime. sometime a swan's crossing retrospective i'm your host libby grant and i'm nathan kessler jeffrey <laughs> my friend who i dragged into this <laughs> out of total cruelty <laughs> i'm so sorry nathan i'm sorry i'm doing this to you know you. what i listen i never in a million years would have watched this show and it has brought such joy to my life <laughs> <laughs> you have only watched the first episode so far right that is correct. I am I am watching them one at a time before we podcast. Yeah, we we talked briefly when I approached you with this insane idea, which you were maybe too eager to <laughs> to jump on. <laughs> you had this great suggestion, which was, um, I've already seen all of Swan's Crossing from top to bottom. Uh, poor me. And you have only watched the first episode. And your idea was we should not have you watch the next episode until just before we record. Because then it's all fresh. It's like your your real reaction to this '90s waspy hell. Right, right, and and it also gives me the opportunity to predict what's going to happen in the next episode, which I am so excited about. I because since I know everything that happens, I, I can't wait to see what the hell you think is going to happen next. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guarantee you, you're going to be wrong. I, oh, <laughs> sure, absolutely, I'm going to be wrong. I'm just looking forward to how wrong I'm going to be. Oh, me too. Uh, most people are probably wondering just what the hell Swan's Crossing is. In fairness, Nathan, I think you and I are still both wondering the same That's thing. That's true. It is 65 episodes long, so I'm I'm yeah. on episode one of 65. I just can't wait. I can't wait until you get to... I'm not going to spoil it, but... Yeah, I can't wait. Is there a specific episode you were looking forward to having me see? And if so, what number? I The one that made me realize I had to do a podcast on this, I had to, was um, episode nine. The, the, the episodes themselves don't have titles, unfortunately. Um, so we are kind of making up our own titles for our podcast episodes. Should we? Yes. Should we title yeah, them? Yeah, we are. And um, unless you have any objections, unless you come up with something else, the title of our inaugural episode here is Lunar Pampers, which we will, <laughs> you might remember that line from your watch through, but um, we'll get to it. Anyway, <laughs> my absolute favorite episode, or, or at least the one that made me made me stop and think, okay, this is insane. I do need to do a podcast about this absolute poop show of, can, can we swear? We haven't worked that out because you're, you're a nice Christian man, Nathan, and I am literally a heathen. I am so. perfectly comfortable with swearing. Um, I- I think okay. uh, I think we should probably put you know one of those warnings on the beginning of the episode yeah. so that people know that we're going to swear. But shit, let's do it. I'll record one later, and you can edit it in, or you can you know whatever. We'll figure it out. We're very much flying by the seat of our pants here, everyone. Libby, is this your first podcast? I have done a lot of interviews on podcasts uh, on other people's podcasts, but this is the first time I've made one myself. I have been on exactly one other podcast as a guest, and this is my first time hosting. So I'm really looking forward to it oh good uh, we're in for um so much insanity I, I decided 
I needed to make this podcast happen when I watched episode nine, which is um, colloquially known among the very weirdly small Swans Crossing fandom. I can't believe this doesn't have an insanely huge cult following, but um, known among the Swans Crossing fandom as Mila's birthday. Um, that was the episode where I was like, what is happening? I, <laughs> I need to talk about this. <laughs> So episode nine was where it really kicked into where it really kicked in for me and where I knew I had to find a friend who was willing to wade through this shit show with me. I I fell into this while binge watching Swans Crossing during the pandemic, like because none of us, you know, were doing anything but binge watching the entirety of various obscure TV shows. We're recording this, by the way, the day after Biden announced that everyone should be able to get a vaccine by May 1st. So I think by the time we start releasing these episodes, most people will be vaccinated and will be running around again. I mean, the pandemic's not exactly over, but it's close to this over. This is the one year anniversary of the day that my wife came home from her her job. So it's about a year since the pandemic really hit home. As most of, I'm sure, the listeners out there recall, there was not a lot to do for the majority of us during the pandemic, but sit around and just binge watch things on our laptops or on our phones. And I fell into Swan's Crossing because I, I remembered several years back, you know, I'd, I'd watched everything I was interested in watching. And I was like, my God, I need something else to watch or I'm going to go insane. And I remembered that several years back, I had talked to my friend Devin and she had just kind of casually mentioned that when she was the summer of that we were both 12 in 1992, she was obsessed with this soap opera for kids called Swan's Crossing, and it had Sarah Michelle Gellar in it. And I didn't really think anything else about it. I was like, okay, whatever. I think she showed me like one episode, but I wasn't really paying attention, so I didn't realize how gloriously insane it was. But I remembered that Devin had told me that. And during the pandemic, I was like, okay, I'm going to find Swan's Crossing and watch it because I might as well. <laughs> you know, what else What else is there to do at this point? So I did. I found it, all of the episodes in order on YouTube, and I binge watched the entire thing in about three days. I could not look away. It was the greatest train wreck I've ever seen in my life. And it sort of happens in slow motion over 65 episodes. And it builds up. Like, by the time you get to the end of it, you're like, what is happening? I mean, it's, I just, I can't wait, Nathan. I can't wait for you to experience this. So, Libby, in the year 1990, yeah, 1992, when this was airing, uh, you were 12 years old. I was 11. What were you doing? Like, what were you into in 1992? Um... I was uh, I was not into stuff like this. Uh, I've always been like a major tomboy. I think I was probably into like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in 1992 and horses. <laughs> that was it. What about you? What were you doing? I wasn't super into theater yet, which is what I ended up doing. Um, a director, playwright. I was, I think, playing baseball because I was 11. And so baseball was big and we were in Kansas City and it was hot. My stars, my stars were aligning for what I would eventually do. But no way in a million years would we have watched this in my house. It is just far too dramatic and racy. <laughs> I love that. Hold that thought for a second. I'm going to go turn my heater off. So that I think we should keep this in. Ugh. I think we should too. Right. It really underscores how old I am now. That's how you know you're getting classic uh, 90s ephemera podcast from a person who actually lived through the 90s. <laughs> Uh, Swan's Crossing was an episodic teleplay, uh, in, in more common parlance, a soap opera that aired daily during the summer of 1992 on syndicated television. 
Now, what makes it unique in the soap opera genre is the fact that it was created specifically for preteen viewers. Classic daytime soap with like all the associated crazy soap opera tropes for children. Not teenagers, but prepubescent children. Your thoughts on this, Nathan? Here's the thing. I don't have a I don't have a frame of reference for normal soaps, really. Because I've never watched them. <laughs> um, all, I'm assuming from watching the first episode of Swan's Crossing that all soap operas are like this. I mean, they kind of are. They, they, this is a, a classic soap. They're all just like over the top and unbelievable and, and in this extreme fantasy world where, uh, where crazy things happen that just don't happen at that rate and quantity to normal people and also where everyone is living this like fabulous lifestyle that no one really lives in real life like we'll you'll understand what i'm talking about when we get into the episodes where mila appears in swan's crossing this character mila you'll just be like what the hell and yeah it's it's just it's a soap opera thing before we actually get into our thoughts about episode one though i wanted to give you a little bit of a history of the show though to be honest not much information is out there um like i said before it never developed yeah it it never developed the cult following it deserves because this is the greatest shit show i've ever seen in my life if you worked on swan's crossing get at us Please do. Please do. I really, I want to know everything about this, but it never developed this cult following. So only really rudimentary information has been sort of preserved for the ages. Um, I was able to learn that the show was executive produced by a woman named Marty Kravitz, And uh, I found out that she was uh, born in 1970 and sadly passed away just a couple years ago in 2018. So Marty was only 22 years old when she brought Swan's Crossing to life. And I have to say, for all its flaws and its incredible bizarreness, I think this is a real achievement for a 22-year-old in show business. I mean, Marty Kravitz didn't exactly discover Sarah Michelle Gellar, but she did cast Gellar in this role that would directly lead to her casting on All My Children. And from there, Sarah Michelle Gellar launched this like tremendously successful acting career and really became like a cultural icon. Are there any other actors from Swan's Crossing that also had careers post Swan's Crossing. Oh yeah, Brittany Daniel who plays Mila who who we sort of touched on before. She went on to play one of the Wakefield twins in Sweet Valley High, which is another thing I am obsessed with speaking of shit shows from the 80s and 90s. So she went on to play one of the Wakefield twins and she also had a number of of supporting roles in a few movies in like the late 90s and early 2000s and most recently she plays Carmen on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So anybody out there who is an Always Sunny fan, Carmen is in this show. Um, And then also, gosh, I can't remember the name of the other actress who plays Sophia. She went on to have quite a few uh, kind of made-for-TV movie type roles and television spots. And she was nominated for a Golden Globe. And I'm sorry, off the top of my head, I can't. Sorvino? Mira Sorvino? Mia Sorvino? No, I know who you're talking about. I'm terrible. Yeah. Mira Sorvino. Yeah, Mira Sorvino. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> if she's listening to this podcast for some insane reason. She's doing a retrospective on her career and just was like, hey, who's talking about Swan's Crossing? Hey, if you're Mira Servino, get at us. Get at us, Mira. <laughs> we have so many questions. <laughs> so two things. First of all, this show didn't kill the careers of every single person who worked in it. That's, no. that's the first thing. And then secondly, 22 years old, 
to produce 65 episodes of television. Truly remarkable. At 22, I had just finished, I was wrapping up my first internship at a major theater and really had no idea what I was doing. So the idea of being an executive producer on a television show boggles my mind. Oh, just wait. Like Marty Kravitz, even though I could find almost nothing about her, she gets even more impressive. So put a pin in that, buddy. I don't even want to tell you what my life was like at 22. It was not even as as good as yours was. (laughs) What I couldn't learn about her, unfortunately, was like any other details about her life. Like who was she as a person? What inspired her to make this show? Although I did... Uh, I read between the lines a little bit, and and I think I might have come up with maybe uh, something that hits on on what might be close to the truth. The show was syndicated for distribution by a company called Saks Film Distribution, which handled quite a few successful TV shows for kids, including Toxic Crusaders and, brace yourself, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which obviously became this like insane hit for some reason, which I still cannot fathom to this day. So it's kind of surprising, actually, that Swan's Crossing didn't hit as big as Ninja Turtles did, because it's not like more insane and stupid than the concept of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know? Right. Saks Film Distribution had some kind of a deal with the Toymaker Playmates, and people my age or slightly younger will probably recall the Toxic Crusaders toys, and anyone with at least... A little bit of interest in 80s and 90s ephemera will absolutely remember the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles toys. That stupid van is burned into my brain forever. Um, Playmates actually did manufacture a line of Swan's Crossing toys, believe it or not. Are you are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. They're crazy. Because apparently Saks anticipated the show being a much bigger hit than it turned out to be. So the toys do exist out there. I actually found quite a few still in the original packages on eBay. And I admit, I am tempted. I'm, I might I might buy a few just for the sake of having them around. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you, need, you need some Swans Crossing memorabilia. No question. If a blister pack uh, Sydney Rutledge shows up on your porch one day, you'll know it's from me. Anyway, the show was ex- co-executive produced by Neil Candell, who was kind of a similar age to Marty Kravitz, a little bit older, um, but still in his 20s. And he had already, he was also kind of like an up-and-coming producer at the time. He'd already done a number of children's movies and did the Encyclopedia Brown series just before he signed on to Swan's Crossing. And a few years after Swans, he went on to produce Are You Afraid of the Dark, which I'm sure you remember, right? Here's the thing. I did not watch scary stuff when I was in, you know, my 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 teens. So I, I know what you're talking about, but I've never seen an episode. We could put Are You Afraid of the Dark and Encyclopedia Brown on our list of future podcasts. Uh, <laughs> Are You Afraid of the Dark is a lot of fun. Um, Paul and I, when we started dating, we discovered that we had the exact same weird memory from an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? So sometimes we'll just like say it to each other to creep each other out. So that's that's how our, our marriage works. And that's love. <laughs> yes. I found an old archived article from the Orlando Sentinel from July of 1992, in which Ned Candell said Swan's Crossing focuses on, quote, kids who are rich enough to act out their fantasies and interesting enough to keep multiple intrigues and stories going, unquote. Now, the rich part, yes. The interesting part, debatable we will get to that later (laughs) some of these characters i don't know the same article gives the only description of swan's crossing as as a setting like the town of swan's crossing that you really find anywhere including 
in the show itself, they never really tell you that much about the town. But in this promotional article from 1992, it says that Swan's Crossing is meant to be a fictional town on the Atlantic seaboard that, quote, appears to be populated entirely by the privileged. (laughs) Boy, is that the truth. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Martha's Vineyard's got nothing on Swan's Crossing, okay? The article goes on to say that the stories revolve around the town's elite families, the old-moneyed Rutledges and Booths, the Claytons, whose family fortune has suspicious origins, and by the way, who never appear in the actual show, (laughs) and the Atwaters, owners of a multinational company, and the country's richest black family. So the Atwaters are supposed to be like the wealthiest black folks in all of America. Just, um... Uh, for future reference as, as you meet okay. Neil Atwater. I mean, we do, we meet Neil in the first episode. We do, but we don't, we don't really start to understand Neil's character for like a couple okay. of episodes. Um, he's, he's great. He's one of my favorite characters, but he's got an arc that he goes on for sure. Uh, I was able to glean a tiny bit about where the show was filmed. It was recorded at a set in Queens, New York. And as it turns out, it's actually the same studio where Sesame Street has always been filmed. So that's kind of some interesting lore. And I found another archived article meant to promote the show. This time it was from an old issue of the Washington Post. And it was mostly a rehash of the article from the Orlando Sentinel. But there was a little bit more added because of the local interest. Eddie Tyklus Robinson, who plays Neil Atwater, was a local DC kid at the time. So the paper had uh, kind of more information about him specifically and his family. The article also contained this fascinating tidbit of information Marty Kravitz apparently won some writing awards for Ryan's Hope, which was a soap opera that ran from 1975 to 1989. So Marty Kravitz would have been just 19 years old at the end of Ryan Hope's run. So she was out there working her butt off and even winning industry recognition from a very young age. So hats off to Marty Kravitz, man. This article confirmed that most of the scripts for Swan's Crossing were written by Kravitz and that she and Neil Candle worked very closely on the overall vision for the show and they kind of considered it their joint creation. Marty also talked a little bit in that that interview about how she didn't want the show to focus on what she called problem solving or real issues. Some of the examples she gave were teen pregnancy, ecology, and AIDS. For those of you who weren't old enough to remember the 90s, AIDS was a huge, huge issue back then, as it should have been, as it should have been in the 80s when we maybe might have stopped 700,000 people from dying of it. But it was definitely like this buzz issue that was touched on in pretty much every TV show. Like there was always an AIDS episode that would come up, like some peripheral character would get AIDS and everybody would be really sad about it. None of that stuff was intended to reach Swan's Crossing, though. She wanted it to be this world kind of apart from the real problems that kids were facing in the 90s. They wanted it to be this fantasy land of squeaky clean romance. They wanted melodrama, but not real drama. And I have to say, I think they pulled that off in spades. I'm gonna I'm gonna concur on that based on one episode. <laughs> oh, just based on one episode. And yeah, yeah, hold on to your pants, buddy. Interestingly, here comes the fascinating part about Marty Kravitz. In reading between the lines in this particular interview... Some of her motivation in creating Swan's Crossing kind of makes sense here. So remember, she was 22 at the time Swan's Crossing aired. Uh, In this article from 1992 mentioned that she had two children at the time, age seven and five. So Marty had her first child at age 15 and her second at 17. So she didn't really get to have her own teenage years. And I can kind of understand why she didn't want to make a show that tackled real problems like teen pregnancy. I mean, she lived that reality herself. And she just wanted to make a show that was all about 
the crazy fantasy of maybe what her teenage years could have been like if they were totally unencumbered by all this real world restriction she was facing. Um, so she wanted to make the teenage experience, I can only assume, she fantasized about constantly while she was raising her two kids. Right. So mother. what you're telling me is that she at 19 years old is winning awards for her writing in soaps while she's a mom of two. Amazing. Yeah. She was amazing. I mean, seriously, huge, huge hats off to Marty Kravitz, who is maybe the greatest unsung hero in, in the history of television. If you knew Marty Kravitz, get at us. Yes, please. I want to talk about her because she sounds like an incredible person and I would love to know more about her life and her history and uh, what what motivated her and um, yeah, just what she was like. She sounds cool. So anyway, on that note, are you ready, Nathan? Are you ready to enter the world of Swan's Crossing? I didn't mean for the pause. I didn't mean for the pause to be that long. I had my mic muted. <laughs> you have to keep that yeah, in. I think so. I think we have to keep that in. I think I think there has to I think we want everyone to just wait a second while I figure out how to work my equipment. Feel the anticipation. <laughs> yes. Let's get into this. Well, the pilot episode opens with a pan across a very fancy-looking colonial-style large house, which might be called a mansion, and a voiceover from a mature woman who will later learn as Muffy Rutledge, the mayor of the town, and mother of one of the most central characters, Sydney Rutledge, who's played by Sarah Michelle Gellar. Would you care to tell us, if you have this in your notes, what Muffy says about Swan's Crossing? Welcome to the town of Swan's Crossing, where everyone grew up believing that the sun never set. Rather, it was put into the family vault for the night. What does that mean? And this, this brings us to a segment we're going to call, Is This a Rich Person Thing? <laughs> family vault. Do family vaults exist? I think they do. I have, I have, a, I have an in-law who has a gun vault. Yeah, I have one of those, but, like, I wouldn't call it a family vault. You know what I mean? Like, is it a vault in which you can put your family? Is it a vault that passes down from generation to generation? Is this, like, an actual rich people thing where, like, is this a, an adage among rich people? Because I was so confused by what they think the son is put into the family vault for the night. Like, no one says that. This is the first line of the television show. And we're already horrified and confused. Right. And then we cut to, so Sydney Rutledge being chauffeured in the convertible, right? And she's bossing around her chauffeur to try and run over some swans. Yes. She she says, use your pedal, which is a, a, a catchphrase, I don't know, a thing she says to Ralph, her chauffeur, an uncomfortable number of times over the course of this, this program. And she's urging him to run over a flock of swans who are trying to cross the road. Get it? Swans right, crossing. Right. We're just we're gonna we're gonna hit it right at the beginning. It's it's important to know here. No swans are harmed, but they do look kind. They of do offended. look offended, and it is it is the first time we see swans in the show. <laughs> it will not be the last time we see swans during the show. I just I'm sorry. I, I'm still hung up on the putting putting the sun in the family vault for the evening thing. Like I. I I don't want to dwell on this over long, but it's so like, it's the first line of dialogue in the show. And it's fitting that that's the first line of dialogue because so much of the dialogue 
feels like it was run through Google Translate into some other language and then back into English again. Like, it's just not 100%. quite right. So first, first Nathan prediction for the next episode, uh, all the episodes start with that line. That's my first prediction. <laughs> I wish you would be right about that. So after uh, after Ralph attempts to run over the the offended swans, um, we cut to this the local restaurant slash hangout, which is kind of the equivalent to the Max in Saved by the Bell or the Peach Pit in Nine Hundred Two One Zero. It is a restaurant called Swans. Yeah, right. go ahead. So this place does have a name then. Yes, it's called Swans. You probably didn't pick up on the name because they mention very the, the word swan or swans is said like fifty thousand times, and it's hard to understand what they're referring to and there's a wall of tvs that seem to have the town logo on them thank you that was in my note too we it's like this restaurant with a wall of televisions that just have like the town sign like the welcome to swans crossing sign like if if it said swans on it instead of swans crossing i might have known that that was the name of the restaurant or diner or whatever the heck this is Swans also appears to have just one employee, a woman named Jazz, who is literally always there. Uh, we will talk about Jazz more later, but um, she's always there. It also there. has, if I, I, I want to I wanna set the scene for everybody. There's a jukebox, definitely like an old like 50s style jukebox. The countertops have taps like for, for like ice cream sodas and that kind of thing. But there's also cornflakes and milk milk yes. left out on the counter. Thank you for bringing up the cornflakes. I just, I'm like cornflakes and, and like the milk is sitting out in the cartons <laughs> on the countertops. They're like open so flies can get in it. <laughs> I'm just so confused. And then in the center behind the bar is this large sculpture of what looks like gears. Gears from like the internal workings of a large clock tower. <laughs> it's a whoever did the interior design of Swan's Soda Shop has some things to answer right? for. But yeah, I was obsessed, obsessed with the cornflakes and half gallons of milk spaced at regular intervals. And they're they're like the little single serving boxes of mm-hmm. cornflakes, just like neatly placed around the the bar counter, as if like this is the special, this is the breakfast special at a at a restaurant in a rich-ass town. Variety pack cornflakes. <laughs> or is it, are, is this, is this the, um, the complimentary, like, are, are these your bar nuts? You walk in and you're, while you're waiting for your entree, you have a bowl of cornflakes. <laughs> have a bowl of cornflakes, you know. Is this a rich people thing? <laughs> If you are rich people, call in and call in. Email us, which we don't have an email address set up yet. Contact us in some way and yeah. tell us. Do you guys just snack on cornflakes? Like, is that we'll, the thing? You know what we'll do? We'll put uh, when we when we do the ad break, we'll put our we'll put our email address in there. We'll, we'll create an email address. We're very prepared for this, our first inaugural episode. We're so prepared. We, we really, I can feel how successful this podcast is going to be already. The camera pans in on a girl sitting forlornly at the counter beside an open half gallon of milk. We find out that she is Sandy Swan, who is daughter of the family that founded the town. Now, the Swans used to be super rich and very important, but now they're like the poorest family in town which makes them still a good deal richer than most other Americans, but which causes everyone else in Swan's Crossing 
to look on them with either pity or contempt. And you would not know it from the way that any of these children are dressed, that there is any difference whatsoever in their economic status. True. Although, to be fair, that was kind of the way fashion was that, in the 90s. <laughs> I mean, except for except for Sydney, obviously, who is, as she is driving, in a jockey uniform. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to get into her entire outfit later, for sure. I have feelings about it. Another girl enters the restaurant, a cute, cute young girl with uh, red hair. She sits next to Sandy. It's Glory Booth, the daughter of the wealthiest family in town, which basically makes her like the daughter of Jeff Bezos, like super, super rich is what she's supposed to be. Glory invites Sandy to like, hey, you want to go hang out? And Sandy is like thrilled because she's so tragically middle class that it's a great privilege to hang out with a booth. But their plans are derailed when Owen enters looking like some sort of golem made out of 90s stereotypes. <laughs> Do you want to... <laughs> Did you take notes on what I didn't Owen is wearing? because I was so distracted by the first shadow of a boom mic on his entrance. <laughs> if you look that. at it, it's Owen is coming into the restaurant. You see the boom mic drop in in the upper left corner of the screen. And I was so distracted by this. Oh my God. I totally missed that because I was so distracted by what he was wearing, which let me lay it out for you folks. Owen dressed in... Shades indoors, because it's the 90s. A cargo vest over a t-shirt featuring a gecko. Neon yellow shorts. A canvas hat printed with film strips. And Birkenstock sandals with white tube socks pulled halfway up his legs. And this is what dudes wore in the 90s. This is how you looked cool back then, okay? Like, this was cool. I remember this shit. We had the most loud colors in the 90s. It was phenomenal. Like, neon everything. It was a visual assault. That was the aesthetic that everyone was going for. Apparently, Owen is the only person in this group of friends who's old enough to drive, even though he looks the youngest of them all, because he yells that he has the car, and everyone in the entire restaurant reacts as if he has just cured cancer, including Jazz, the right. adult waitress. Yes, because he got the car. He has the car. He got the car. Everyone literally screams. It is not clear if he has the family car, if he has been given the family car for the day, or if he has purchased his own vehicle. Yeah, it's never explained. It's just, I got the car, and everyone's like, oh, I got the car! Like, freaking out, losing their minds. Sandy steals an ice cream cone from Jazz, like, literally just takes it from her without paying, because I guess because she's poor. Uh, it's charity, charity ice cream. Jazz has decided that trying to stop these rich kids from doing anything just isn't worth it. Also, the cone, the cone is clearly <laughs> stuck to the serving tray. Like, who puts an ice cream cone on a serving tray? Yeah, it, it's a. There's definitely some Velcro involved somewhere. It's it's a. No one's that good at balancing things on serving trays. No one. As they're leaving, Glory explains that she isn't with JT, who's her boyfriend. Because he and his friend Neil had some important research to do. And then we cut to the important research. Which, would you care to explain what JT the hell is going on? JT and Neil uh, are performing really important research by launching a rocket somewhere near the ocean. <laughs> it's like, it's a rocket. It's not like the little model rockets we made in fourth grade with like CO2 launchers. It is like a... 15 foot tall rocket yeah. with a launch yeah. tower. And, and at one minute and 50 seconds into the episode, they start their, their <laughs> rocket countdown. 
why they start their <laughs> rocket countdown at 30 seconds is beyond me. And I was desperately hoping that they would just count down all 30 immediately right there and take and take us from 150 in the episode <laughs> to 220 into the episode. But they don't. They cut away very quickly and we cut to kids dancing in a gazebo. Oh my God. Yes. It, it's like the heart of town. And these, like, 14-year-olds, like, a whole crowd of 14-year-olds are busting some serious moves. This is definitely how I was dancing in 1992. Oh, yeah. There is this one little, like, stout ginger kid who is into it, though. And I was kind of feeling his moves. He was, like, right. destined. I want to know where that kid is now. He is probably a professional dancer. <laughs> he was great. Also, Sandy is singing a song. We'll find out later that Sandy's this brilliant singer-songwriter who's attempting to become, like, the next great rock legend. And she's also a depressive. Uh, fun fun fact about Sandy. And that sort of comes out of nowhere. Just like, you know, in this episode, she's reasonably perky and fun. And then later, she's just, like, can't even move because <laughs> she's in the well, grip of such when a your deep family, depression. When your family goes to being upper, upper, upper class to upper middle class what are you gonna do <laughs> yeah that's right you know this it's rock bottom <laughs> but but for we haven't reached her her depressive her her uh the down phase of her bipolar disorder yet so for now sandy is sitting with her friends in owen's car which is a convertible of course because everyone in this town drives a convertible and she's using her purloined ice cream cone as a microphone and it appears to be working because the teens all over town are dancing to her sick, sick jams. Like everybody in town can hear her singing via a, a magic ice cream cone. I mean, that is very good. But the but to me, the thing that is truly impressive is that Owen's convertible has, he has put a synthesizer on the back of it and is actively playing to accompany yes. Sandy's ice cream cone singing. The ice cream cone, to, yeah, to be he, noted, is untouched as an ice cream cone. It has not been licked. It has not been eaten in any way, shape, or form. It is just being held. It, yeah, she's just using it to sing into, and it's working tremendously well. And Owen has this huge, like, giant Casio spread across the back of his car, and he's, like, in the back seat, like, playing the keyboard, which is not hooked up to anything either, and yet is projecting... Uh, all over town. It's incredible. For our younger listeners, a Casio is an electric keyboard from the like 80s, 90s. Oh my god, I can't believe we have to say this stuff. I'm so old. <laughs> anyway, um, someone pulls up on a rinky-dink little motorcycle-y thing and mumbles something through his helmet and then zooms away again. We learn about that later, but it's not it's not played very well because you're just like, what the hell was that? And then Sydney enters walking in front of the car her chauffeur is driving. Oh my god, yeah. He's like rolling in his car and she is pacing slowly in front of him. Oh, but our first clue that it's Sydney is that Glory, the the red-haired girl, like looks up and screams, Sydney! As if she's actually thrilled to see this crazy bitch return right. to Swan's Crossing, right? And then, like, it cuts to this incredibly dramatic, like, super soapy, slow pan up Sarah Michelle Gellar's entire person as she strolls with this, like, controlled arrogance into the town square. And I have to say, Sarah's acting chops were really on display in this show. 100%. Very, like, you, you know this, Nathan, being a lifelong theater dude yourself and a professional 
theater man. What what's like? What do you call yourself? What's your job title? I'm a I'm a director. Would just call me a director. It's fine. Can I just call you professional theater man? <laughs> professional theater man is also very good. Okay, well, as a professional theater man, you know very well that young people are not often good actors. It takes a while usually to develop an understanding of what acting is before they can kind of get their chops, right? And while I think the whole cast of Swan's Crossing was clearly doing the best they could with some incredibly poor scripts... Sarah's actually very nuanced and intentional in her portrayal of Sydney Rutledge, and I have to hand it to her, she makes this character special, even though Sydney is a total psycho hose beast. A hundred percent, yes. Honestly, like, so impressive throughout this first episode, from her intentionality, from her character choices, and her incredibly intense stares... <laughs> Yes, she has remarkable intensity. I think she was 15 when they filmed this, if oh I remember gosh. correctly. And I mean, she had it nailed, man. It's no wonder that she went on to uh, be cast in All My Children in like one of the most infamous roles of all time is like this bad girl named Kendall. I can't remember her last name, but but uh, she was a great character. And, and that role in All My Children launched her into Buffy, which of course she became like super famous for. Anyway, Sydney, we're panning up Sydney and she is dressed in full ass riding togs. I'm talking calf-high show boots, camel jods, black dressage coat, black gloves, white riding shirt with a monogrammed collar, and her velvet hunt cap and crop whipper in her hands. Oh, with bright red lips and dark shades. She looks fucking killer. But also, no one dresses like this unless you're about to ride into a show arena. So I don't know what she's doing just dicking around Swan's Crossing in her riding gear. Would this would this constitute our first example of unfortunate sexualizing of a minor in this show? Um, the first of many. It is, and like, you can read this as just Sydney's looking rich and badass and not looking sexual, so it's it's forgivable here. Sure. Uh, there come some moments later where you're like, oh, this is uncomfortable. But that was kind of the way the '90s were back then. It was sort of the wild west of culture. We cut back to the rocket launch. Something has gone wrong, and Neil stupidly runs forward. Oh, runs forward from, by the way, this is, this is, this is how the rocket launch is set up, okay? It's like a 15-foot launch tower and an equally huge rocket. And then approximately 20 feet away, the boys have built uh, a little wall of driftwood that's like two and a half feet high. Because that's going to keep them safe from rocket fuel <laughs> spewing all over them. So... So we cut back to the rocket launch. Neil like runs forward out of his shelter of driftwood to mess with this live ignition rocket. Um, JT yells at him about something. I don't know what. They continue their 30 second countdown. Wait, wait, wait. It's still going on. When we, yeah, when we pause the countdown so that JT can go to the rocket, we are now two minutes and 43 seconds into the episode and they've only counted down from 30 to 15. I'm so glad you were keeping track of this. Also, it's worth mentioning, they're counting down by saying T minus before every number. So it's T minus 30, T minus 29, oh <laughs> T minus 28. Like, it's not how you do it. Anyway, um, from from the, the drama at the rocket, we immediately, with whiplash speed, right back to the town square, where Glory is screaming about Sydney again, and she and Sandy go scampering up to greet her. And they're like, oh my god. Sydney is back. Yeah, Sydney, you're back. And and Sydney like takes off her shades in a way that makes you feel like shit's about to hit the fan. And she's like, yes, 
I am back. So, you know, brace yourselves. Here it comes. Mm-hmm. We cut to the motorcycle guy again. He pulls up next to another dude on exactly the same model of bike. He takes off his helmet to, re- to reveal that he's Garrett. Garrett Booth, Glory's brother, and therefore also the richest kid in town. He high fives the other kid who's Jimmy, but we don't know who Jimmy is yet. So it's superfluous information. And they raced away. It took me the entire episode to figure out if I had caught Jimmy's name correctly. Somebody finally says his name in the clear at the end of the episode. And I was like, kid in the white jacket is Jimmy. Got it. So after this weird motorcycle disorienting side trip, um, we're back to Sydney and the girls. Sydney reveals that she has come back early from horse camp. To, tell, to help her mother get reelected as mayor. And this show will continue to treat the race for mayor of one small East Coast village as an election as momentous as the 2020 presidential election. It's just like the highest stakes thing anyone has ever experienced. You know, I haven't seen all the episodes yet, but I can see, I can see us laying the seeds for that here. But more importantly, the ice cream is finally real. The ice cream is real because uh, Sydney notices Garrett and Jimmy who are now riding their bikes in circles around a pack of terrified adult women, but they both have their helmets on too. So somehow Sydney knows it's Garrett anyway. She's shocked because Garrett is supposed to be in France this summer. Glory doesn't know why her brother has come home from France early. Apparently had no advance notice of this. Sydney decides she has to find out what's going on. So yeah, she pulls all of her friends into her convertible with her. And yeah, she like snatches Sandy's ice cream cone away from her and gives it to Ralph, the chauffeur, right. who licks it. And for some reason, there's like this really exaggerated sound effect of slurping. That was weird. Right. And we get we get our first fat shaming moment of the. Oh, yes. Of Sydney taking the ice cream from Sandy. So real quick on on Glory's brother, Garrett, coming back from yeah. France. I want to understand the timeline here because Glory didn't know that her brother was back. So apparently he wasn't at the breakfast table this morning, which means that he flew in and immediately was like, I want to get on my motorbike and race my friend Jimmy first thing. (laughs) He was just all that time he spent in Provence or wherever. All I could think about was racing mini bikes with Jimmy. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> what is all this beautiful culture here in France? Give me a motorcycle. Oh my god. Oh, oh gotta get back to my motorbikes. Yep. Um, Sydney gives the hilarious command, follow those mini bikes in this like great authoritative voice. Follow those mini bikes. And then she just like sits up on the side of the convertible, like not in the seat. She's sitting on the door Mm -hmm. while Ralph drives after them. That's safe. Way to go, Ralph. Yep. (laughs) God. Ralph has had it. Ralph, like Jazz, has decided that it is way better to just let these kids do whatever they want than it is to deal with their parents. He has given up. Yeah, you don't even know how right you are, too. I mean, there's some really, there's some great Ralph moments later in, later in the show. <laughs> He's, he gives up. <laughs> so we, we, we cut to, we cut back to Neil and JT at the, at the rocket. They've resumed the count. We're at 5.07 into the episode, and they've pushed themselves back to 27 seconds. Yes, I made a note of that, too. Why? Why? <laughs> Why not just start back at 30 again? Yeah, great question. Oh my God. Then we cut to another set entirely. Now, at first it's hard to tell 
River. At first, it's hard to tell. No, that was me. That was me. Oh, was that you? About this set. Oh, I thought it was your dog. Nope, nope, that was me. Keep this in. (laughs) 100%. This is part of the podcast. This it's so hard to tell what the set is at first because there's a big steering wheel like what you'd see on a boat, but it looks like it's in an enclosed room and there's like a ladder leaning up out of frame and for some reason a bird cage and this weird kind of pipe-like structure which we'll come to later and there's a weird dude in a smoking jacket who kind of looks like Kelsey Grammer. He's reading some sort of nautical measurements and estimates. And he announces that they will soon be arriving at Swan's Crossing. And don't spoil it yet for where what where they are, what the set is, because we got to give them the reveal just like you you get the reveal as a oh, viewer yeah. of the show. Well, my favorite my favorite thing about this is that his daughter walks in, and they have this conversation where they talk about all of the crazy. I mean, they don't tell you the crazy places that they've been just that the places have been crazy and apparently swan's crossing is quote unquote the only place left the only place left what does this even mean great question <laughs> we don't know she is she's like she's like let's go back to zanzibar or whatever and he's like you know this is the only place left Right, right. (laughs) The only place. His daughter isn't happy. We don't know either of their names yet. No, we don't know anything about them. It's just these people on this very weird set. I'm not sure that we learn their names in this episode. Yeah, I don't know if we do. Well, we learn her name, but I don't know if we learn his name. He he calls for charts and a protractor. The girl says check, even though she's just standing there. She doesn't actually like go confirm that those things are anywhere near. She like, like she's just humoring him. Like oh god. Dad's in protractor mode again. <laughs> She's like, check. Um, he talks about how the currents haven't changed. And she says, sounds like nothing ever changes in Swan's Crossing. And if nothing changes, then nothing happens. Oh, how wrong you are, madam. <laughs> anyway, she's like super pissed off that she has to go live in Swan's Crossing with this guy who you can kind of assume is her dad. And it is. Um, although it's never, he never refers to her as like his daughter or anything. So as far as you know, it's just a teenage girl and a weird old man living on this boat-like thing together. A very tall boat-like thing. It's important to know the height. That's important. It's got like 15 foot ceilings. Then he delivers the immortal line, prepare to surface. And you realize with slow dawning horror that these two crazy people are on a submarine. It's a submarine. <laughs> A private live aboard submarine. I have so many feelings. In which one can wear a smoking jacket and cravat. Yes. Like you're some sort of like 1990s Captain Nemo. <laughs> I just, okay. Nathan, you and I both live in a nautical town. We do. Um, a very, very small town. Probably we won't say the name. I don't foresee anybody being weird about this podcast, but you never know, you know. Sure. But we live in this very small town in a fairly remote area, and there's pretty much nothing to do here except things involving boats. We even have a whale museum in our town. <laughs> we do. We have a whale museum. So you and I have at least a passing familiarity with boats and boat culture. We have been on boats. We ourselves have been on boats. We definitely have been on boats. Why not a liveaboard sailboat? Like, who thought of this? <laughs> so... A submarine that is like also an apartment is just the strangest idea I've ever seen. 
it's not like we get furniture in this like it really it really is like just the bare basics of what you would need for a submarine there's a thing to steer there's a thing to do your charts on there's a, a ladder up to the hatch and a periscope we cut to the surface of the water where the periscope rises but the periscope is disguised as a swan why no reason just just cuz just get used to it because functional objects unnecessarily fashioned to resemble swans will be a common theme i have actually we have we i've started a uh, gratuitous swan count i've divided it into live swans and things that look like swans excellent <laughs> okay yeah keep that running tally cuz i think we're going to be really interested in uh in the swan count after a few episodes here the periscope looking up above the water catches the end of the rocket countdown so we're f- we're finally at the end how many minutes are we into this now like it's six minutes and 55 seconds into the episode we're going five four excuse me t minus five t minus four <laughs> garrett and jimmy show up just as the rocket is about to launch and garrett delivers the snarky line still trying to blow up the world and then they stop the launch because that's a thing you can do five seconds out. And JT yells at Garrett because they hate each other. There's some, it's unexplained. It's completely unexplained tension why these two young men hate each other. They just hate each other. They, they hate each other's guts. No, I mean, listen, I get it from JT's end. Garrett sucks. <laughs> but I don't know what, I don't know what Garrett has against JT. Like, he's fine. Right. So we're back to Sydney. They have been pulled over and she's furious that Ralph got like several moving violations, including, I don't know if you caught this, failure to obey the Swan's Crossing sign. So apparently this town reveres swans to the point that if you do not yield to them, you will be fined. And also, we didn't talk about this, but in the last time we saw Sydney, she was egging the, the car on with her riding crop like it was a horse. Yes, she was whipping the car to make it yes. go faster. Yes. <laughs> Which is not, not how physics works, but okay. So so Officer Moore is is giving them a warning since it's the mayor's car instead of giving them an actual ticket. And Sydney flips her a ration of shit, even though she's doing her a solid. Like Officer Moore is cutting her a lot of slack because apparently they were going 80 in a residential area. That's not warning stuff. That's a hefty ticket. Like you would have vaporize the child if you had hit them <laughs> like run out into the street they'd be dead also apparently sydney like reached over and stepped on ralph's foot to make him use his pedal better so it's her damn fault they were going 80 on a residential street and glory asks her she's like why did you do it why did you why did you step on ralph's foot and make him speed and sydney says in the most dramatic way possible garrett's back and i have to know why <laughs> has to know why then mayor muffy rutledge is walking around with her assistant blah blah they're talking about the upcoming fourth of july celebration and we get a little yeah go for it did you did you say sydney's mom's name is muffy her name is muffy oh my god i mean it's margaret but everyone calls her muffy (laughs) okay great yeah Yeah, okay sorry i know perfect right So we get a little bit of exposition about the, the Booth family. Um, she, Muffy Rutledge hates Grant Booth, who's Garrett and Glory's dad. And it's clear that she, like, she, we don't really know why she hates him. I mean, she lists several different ways he's annoying. Like, he runs a construction company that's just not very good, and they keep slacking off and not getting the remodel on her house done. But she, like, 
really hates him like he's a Bond villain or something. <laughs> and it seems a little out of proportion. Apparently, she can tolerate Grant because Garrett is in France. Yes, because Sydney and Garrett became romantically entangled, like basically at the end of last school year. So this is the summer between one school year and the next. And um, she doesn't want her daughter being involved with Garrett, which, fair news, Garrett is definitely a future date rapist. Like, he's horrible. I would be very concerned if I had a daughter hanging out with Garrett. But but because Garrett is, she thinks Garrett is still in France, she can, like, put up with Grant Booth. So we're back to Sydney in her car. She asks Glory whether Garrett asked about her in any of his letters. Glory says no, he didn't. And then we crossfade to this really confusing scene. I'm curious what you think was happening with this What campaign. fever dream is this? Two kids... Garrett and Sydney gazing into each other's eyes in front of a rose, like a rose trellis. What the fuck? She's going to be thinking of him. He gives her a rose. Literally, is this, like, this is the moment at which I realized they were just leaving each other for the summer. That's all this was. Yeah. It was like a few weeks tops. So, yeah, they're like... They're like saying goodbye before he leaves for France and Garrett's all mopey and he's like, you'll be so busy with your horse shows, you won't even know I'm gone. And then she's like, I'll always have time to think of you. And then he's like, we can't write or call because your mom hates me. And then she says, if you really like me, you'll find a way. They really go hard on the verb like in this show, which is interesting to me. Love is almost never talked about. It's all about like which is really in perfect keeping with the intended audience, which was like pre-middle school kids, like, you know, 12, 11, to 11 through 13 year olds, maybe even a little bit younger than that. Children who are not ready yet for love, but who understand liking boys or liking right. boys, right? So I thought it was really yeah. interesting that they, they focus super hard on, oh, you like me. If you really like me, you'll find a way. <laughs> um, so Garrett gives Sydney a single red rose. It's, it's very touching, blah, blah. So we, we go back to the argument between JT and Garrett. JT accuses him of being kicked out of his fancy French boarding school, but like it's summer, so he wouldn't be in school anyway. And then would you care to elucidate Garrett's true reason for coming back to Swan's Crossing? You emailed me in all caps about this. <laughs> I don't, okay, I don't remember what I emailed you in all caps. I do remember the line uh, that he says about leaving the French girls was the hardest. <laughs> Very upsetting. Yeah. Um, and then it was at this point in the in the episode that I realized I don't think Garrett's lips ever touch each other. Yeah. Oh, I think you're right. The guy has perma smile. He does. It's more like perma smarm. Yes, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. But Garrett Garrett informs JT that, that he didn't get kicked out of his boarding school. He came back because. My dad's having some cash flow problems, okay? I came to help my dad out. My dad is having some cash flow problems. That's, that's just what every businessman needs. Assistance from his psychotic 14-year-old son. Right? My, my dad has some cash flow problems. I'm back to help him. And the first thing I do was race mini bikes. <laughs> I'm joining the underground mini bike racing scene. 
Jimmy owes me like a thousand dollars now. That's how I'm helping out my dad. Oh God, it was so crazy. Oh, they also they also refer to Garrett as the stud of Swan's Crossing. <laughs> Fourteen year old boys. Not studs. I, I can say that with a high degree of confidence, having been a 14-year-old girl myself. Right. <laughs> Not right. studs. No matter no matter what we thought of ourselves at 14. And this is this is truly the gift that we are given as young men, is that we don't realize how awkward we are until later. <laughs> True. <laughs> Many of us go through that like 12 to 15-year-old range without realizing that we're completely awkward and terrible. Yeah. And it's only later that we realize that, which is a true gift to us. Because I think we, I think if we knew, we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> so then we crossfade again to the same goodbye scene as before. But I, I think what's happening this time is it's Garrett's version of the memory. So I think before we were seeing Sydney's memory of how they said goodbye. This, I think, is how Garrett recalls them saying goodbye and he's like i'll miss you and she completely blows him off and she she says the line in this way that's like screw you i've got my horses i don't remember how she says it but it's like yeah whatever horses (laughs) he flings the rose at her and storms off and she like ends the scene laughing at him but what really struck me about this scene like she laughs with this evil glee and then she turns and looks straight down the camera and into our souls I don't know. It's such a strange scene. <laughs> right. And as as that image of her staring into our souls fades, Garrett and the Rocket Boys, their fight sort of escalates, and Yellow Jacket Kid, who I still didn't know was named Jimmy, is like trying to look tough and he like pulls down on his yellow jacket. And oh, it's yeah. just hilarious to me. He's like mm. <laughs> He does. Yeah, Jimmy Jimmy's interesting. <laughs> We we get a lot more Jimmy later, and he gets stranger and stranger. So, yeah, and JT snidely says to Garrett, like, just, he's like, well, we're about to launch now. And then he says, hope you've got your lunar pampers on. What? <laughs> it's another line where I'm like, what does that mean? Like, I don't understand what emotion or intent is attempted to be conveyed with that line of dialogue. But okay. Here are my theory. Okay. Theory number one. The rocket ship explosion, the liftoff is going to be so, so big and so epic. It is going to cause Garrett to soil himself. That's theory number one. Okay. Theory number two, lunar pampers are needed for the, for the liftoff because it's going to be so impressive. Uh, and we can talk about these as I give them or we can, I can give them all and we can talk about them at the end. I think um, give them all. Okay. Do them now. Let, let's let's stay in the moment here. <laughs> Theory number two is that we are we are prepping the rocket in order to send Garrett to the moon. Oh. We want to get rid of him so desperately that this is a test launch to to see if we can achieve orbital status. Therefore, Garrett, put on some lunar pampers. Oh, oh, I like that. They're literally trying to launch Garrett into the sun. Right. Or I guess the moon in this case. Sure. Ah, okay. Well, I mean, I don't blame them. Right. Theory number three is that JT has no significant comeback and just wants to make uh, Garrett feel like a baby. And so puts puts a modifier, an adjective in front of the word pampers. (laughs) That's... 
That's probably the most likely. I feel like scenario. that one is probably what's actually going on. Oh my god! Lunar Pampers is really Lunar Pampers. So so good, so good. Hope you got your Lunar Pampers on. Yeah. Oh well. Um. Anyway, back to the ill-advised submarine. Submarine girl is watching through the periscope and warning her dad about a whole flock of swans above. He admiringly, dad, she's like, dad, there's a whole flock right above us. And he admiringly says, beware aloof beauties. And that was the moment where I kind of went, oh, so I think the writers of the show chose swans very deliberately as a symbol for the stuck up yet gorgeous rich people who inhabit this town. Like, like this was their attempt at imagery or you know symbolism I, I keep using that word but yeah i think it was it was a very intentional choice and i and i think it has to be because then the submarine girl says they can be so nasty it's like foreshadowing of what all these beautiful horrible teenagers are going to do to each other oh my gosh <laughs> i you know what yeah there's a bit of uh, a bit of like self awareness on the part of the show so good yeah I mean that just pinged me. I, I'm a professional writer. You're you're a professional theater man. I'm a professional writer woman. So, <laughs> so that's that's what I bring to this is uh, trying to figure out what the hell is going on in the writer's head. If I'm if I'm a professional theater man, can you be a professional word monkey or something? Yes. <laughs> so, um, submarine guy Kelsey Grammer of the submarines tries to convince his daughter that she'll like living in Swan's Crossing. She's not convinced because they are, quote, land lovers, which is definitely a word that teenagers say. Right, right. <laughs> and then he also, he's like, he's like, we've both had too much excitement lately in a way that makes it seem like there's something rad and dangerous in their past, but there isn't. Like, it's never gone into. I think the writers just forgot that this family had some sort of submarine-related hijinks that they were fleeing. It's just, it's never brought up again. <laughs> this is the only place that's left. It's the only place that's left, Libby. <laughs> it's the only place left. I do, I do have a question. I do have a question that I think is important. Why does the submarine captain ring the bell on the submarine? Are there other people on the submarine? I don't know, like a crew. There there must be, because Submarine Girl climbs up the ladder to the hatch, so I guess they've moored? But like neither one of them did anything, so there must be some kind of crew that moored the sub. Are they still out in the open water? I don't know. No, no, they're not, because she like shakes her long curly hair in the fresh air luxuriantly. And acts like she's thrilled to be there, even though we just spent a bunch of time establishing that she's, like, really pissed about having to live in this town. So now she's all like, ah, oh, I'm going to go on land and, and shake my hair and it's going to be great. Can we talk about the fact, though, that when she does, in fact, shake her hair, they have very, very intentionally angled the camera in such a way that you can't see anything around the hatch. Like, you can't see that there's water around it or any landmarks or anything. It's just sky which means that when she shakes her hair, you actually can't see her hair. Yeah, it's just kind of her shoulders and like the lower part of her face. It's really weird. The camera work in the show leaves something to be desired. Well, I, <laughs> I feel very confident that they were trying not to see that she was standing on a ladder or something. Right, you know. <laughs> on a soundstage, yeah. <laughs> There's three guys holding the, the hatch around her, you know. 
But let's jump back, please, to the rocket launch because we are now oh, yes. we are now eleven minutes and forty seven seconds into this episode, and these two idiots start the count back at T minus fifteen. I want to I want to remind us that our last countdown we were at five and four, and that was six minutes and fifty five seconds into the episode. And the boys, so now all the boys are kind of gathered on one side, and the girls all come walking up on the other side, and Sydney and Garrett see each other, and Garrett runs toward her with his arms outstretched, but not like he's going to hug her. It's like he's carrying a huge invisible object that he wants to give her. Like a monster. It's like if Frankenstein <laughs> was a teenager whose lips didn't touch and had... Uh, perpetual smirk or smarm or whatever we're calling it he's running running to her like a, like it's amazing it's truly amazing it's the strangest body language just as he crosses in front of the rocket neil yells stop and the rocket explodes to the accompaniment of a shredding guitar i did not it's notice like, the guitar you're in, you're in. It's so good. It it is also it is also important to note that the rocket blows up. It goes nowhere. It just blows up in place. And the camera like holds on the image of the burning rocket for what feels like an eternity. It's just way too long before it cuts to anything else. And when we do cut away, it is to Sydney screaming in what is truly one of the most incredible performances I've ever seen. Just like completely committed to this, this loss. Garrett! She, she doesn't pronounce Garrett the way we do on the West Coast. She screams, Garrett! And seriously, get used to Sydney screaming at the top of her lungs because it's going to happen a lot from here on out. It, it makes me wonder if like, 99% of Sarah Michelle Geller's audition reel for the show was just screaming because <laughs> they clearly they wanted her for a particular purpose and this was it. Yeah. Back on the sub, the sub guy sees the rocket explode through his swanoscope and he thinks he's being fired upon by enemy forces, I guess, so he grabs the girl and pushes her to the floor of the sub and covers her with her body which like why? You're already on a sub, you're underwater, or at least mostly underwater. There's so many exciting things and about this moment. First of all, he sees the rocket explode through the through the periscope, literally sees it fall over through the periscope <laughs> and totally overreacts. Like the, the <laughs> rocket has gone nowhere, and yet the submarine shakes like it's actually hit them. Yes, the submarine shakes. It's in the water. And a land-based explosion causes it to shake violently. Like, violently enough that it rings the weird bell. <laughs> so now he wants to leave. He's like, we gotta get out of Swan's Crossing, it's no longer safe here. And now his daughter won't- she's like, no, we're not leaving. Because, like, seconds ago she was trying to convince him that they should go to Zanzibar. And now she's like, no, we're staying in Swan's Crossing. Obviously. This is some terrible writing right here. Maybe. It's the only place left. It's the only place left. Back on land, everyone is horrified over the rocket explosion. Somehow, the three-foot barrier of driftwood kept everyone safe, though. So I guess joke's on me for mocking that earlier. Sydney freaks right the fuck out. Just oh, she total. loses her shit. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, she thinks Garrett is dead, and she is just beside herself, screaming, screaming and screaming, while, for no apparent reason, the camera pans over a placid flock of swans, and one of the swans is kind of opening its mouth, so it kind of looks like the swan is yelling, Garrett! <laughs> I laughed so hard at that. And then we cut to Sydney's mom going over her schedule. Yes. It's it's really like they talk about Sydney a lot. Sydney's mom seems more invested in what's going on with Sydney than her own campaign. There's something about booking the green room at the Swan Club. There's some like Sydney's mom, Muffy, is apparently, I think, declaring war on Grant Booth. Is that correct? Yeah, she makes some kind of weird, like, scary allusions to the fact that she's gonna sue him for shoddy construction work on her house, but she's planning more than just a lawsuit. Right. She says, she's like, I'm going to destroy the entire Booth clan, but there's, like, no details on how or why. She just hates I'm not sure what this (laughs) war is, but she's taking it very seriously. Muffy is into this war. Yeah, she's she is fully invested in just destroying Grant Booth. So we go back to the site of the rocket disaster, where Sydney is still shrieking, "I killed him!" While the other kids basically just don't react. Like that's the funniest thing to me. I I got the impression that the director told Sarah to just go nuts and to really really give it her all, and the other kids like didn't know how to handle that. Like I mean, I think she's. She is a, a more experienced and maybe a, a more naturally talented actor than they were at this point, where I think some of them could have used uh, uh, a little mellowing and some drama classes in college to get get to her level of chops. And, like, they don't know how to yes and her, right? <laughs> so she's just, like, flailing around this set, swamped by grief, thinking Garrett is dead, screaming and yelling, and the other kids are just, like... Right. Uh, Moving from kid kid hoping to get a reaction just like grabbing on them and they they're like they're giving her nothing they're giving her nothing they're nothing she's playing off of nothing and she kind of like falls into jimmy jimmy's arms and like wilts to the ground and he just sort of awkwardly lets her fall it's <laughs> my favorite part where the, the kid who plays jimmy was obviously like is the director gonna say cut because what the fuck's going on here JT and Neil are way more concerned about how their rocket blew up than apparently Garrett's death. I know, it's great. Glory, Garrett's own sister, like, really calmly says, I can't find Garrett. It's like he went up in smoke. Your brother just got blown up before your eyes, and you're like, huh, that's weird. And then then Sydney says the immortal line that is going to haunt me to my dying days. When he walked toward the rocket, he had a look of pure love. <laughs> yes, yes! Sydney is losing her mind, and Sandy's like, this is this is the greatest moment in like the history of screenwriting. Sandy says, You have one thing thing to feel good about, and Sydney kind of pulls herself together and says, I do. <laughs> Sandy says, When Garrett walked toward that exploding rocket, he had a look of pure love on his face. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then Sydney's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, she's totally fine now. And she just gets up to her, like, climbs to her feet. All the screaming and horror of having killed her boyfriend are just totally forgotten. 
So then JT finds like a flat rock with some writing on it and he shows it to Glory and it says, M-O-K, don't tell S. So they're like, oh, Garrett's just punking Sydney. Like you faked his own death to be funny. And Glory, Glory's like talking to JT, her boyfriend, and she's like, Garrett and Sydney are a perfect match. And then the requisite 90s sexy saxophone begins its uh, sultry, <laughs> sultry background moan. And JT says, no, we are. And they almost kiss, which is exactly what you want to do when your friend is convinced that she just caused your brother to blow himself up because he wanted to give her an invisible present. So Neil Neil gets impatient because he can't stand JT's relationship with Glory for reasons which I think will become obvious in later episodes. <clears throat> the scene is really great, though, because whenever JT and Glory are talking to each other, it's sexy sax music. But then as soon as anyone else talks, it's like rock and backbeat. It, it just keeps like weirdly cutting back and forth between like like romance music and like do 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 so weird then apparently sydney sydney without seeing the rock that jt has found sydney becomes suddenly convinced that j that garrett is not dead and yells at the top of her lungs that he has an hour to get to the soda shop or she's calling the police. The the police. The police. She's like, okay, Garrett's not dead because he had a look of pure love on his face. Everything's fine. Um, and yeah, she's like, fuck you, Garrett. I mean, not in those words, but she's right. like, I know you're out there somewhere, you little jackass. Meet me at Swan's soda shop in one hour. I'm calling the cops. And then she and the girls leave. And then we see Garrett who's just casually lounging behind a log and should have been really easy to find. Right. And he delivered his immortal catchphrase. Did you take a note on his catchphrase by any chance? Uh, Did I? uh, Let's see here. Um, uh, No. No, I didn't. Okay, here it is. Immortal catchphrase. Ooh, I love myself. (laughs) So good. Yeah. So good. Garrett reveals his super great hiding place to Jimmy who and then like this is really weird scene where Garrett like is laughing evilly and recounts all the shitty things he's ever done to Sydney in the past to make her cry including hiding all of her horse trophies. Garrett's a total a-hole like his entire mission in life is to make his girlfriend cry mm-hmm. <laughs> in distress. Mm-hmm. What a what a winner. Yep. And then Garrett's like, I'll, I'll go to Swans in an hour and 10 minutes because he, he wants to be a dick to Sydney. Right. And then he's like, do you have anything to drink? Because all that laughing made me really thirsty. And Jimmy's like, I'll get you a drink from Swans and bring it back here. But like, why? Because Garrett's going to go to Swans anyway. In an hour and right? 10 minutes. So, That's a long time to wait for a beverage. I guess. Yeah. So Garrett sits down to look out at the ocean and he has this moment of reliving his triumph, which is presented to us. In the form of a really weird pixelated wipe effect. Right. And a short supercut of like first Garrett running, you know, towards the explosion, then the explosion, and then Sydney shrieking. But while these scenes are all flashing before our eyes, there's also this like audio track of Garrett's really evil laughter over the top of it. It's like, <laughs> this is just the first inkling we have that Garrett is a literal psychopath. Like, he is evil. And he hears something and turns around thinking it's Jimmy, but it's not. You want to tell us what it is? It is a backlit shadow helmet person with gloves in silhouette. And and Garrett responds to this like it's the mummy or something. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> he does. He's like, 
outside. He's like, who are you? And, <laughs> and this like scary doom music plays. Right. Well, the mystery person puts their hands on their hips and freeze frame credits roll. That's the end of episode one. It's amazing. Oh my God, so much happened and it was all confusing. Can I, can I uh, share with you a few of my favorite lines from Oh, this please do, please do. So obviously we have the, the welcome to the, the town of Swans Crossing one. When her friends greet her for the first time, Sydney, uh, I think Gloria says something around, I'm so glad you're back, Sydney. And then Sydney says, yes, it must've been really dull without me. I don't think anything is ever dull in this weird town. Oh my gosh. <laughs> At one point, Muffy having a conversation with her like her like staff person uh, or whoever that is that she's talking to about the 4th of July fireworks and they're talking about Grant doing the work on the house and the guy's like, you're suing. And she just goes, naturally. <laughs> and then- Of course, because that's what rich people do. They sue each yeah, other. Yeah. And then at one point, at one point uh, after, after Garrett- has died um or quote unquote died uh i think it's sandy looks is trying to comfort trying to comfort uh sydney and she goes it's all right we all killed him (laughs) sydney's like i killed him i killed him and then sandy's like no we We all all killed killed him him. oh the next time if only they had all killed Garrett. Oh gosh, seriously, I bet we'd save ourselves a lot of grief later. Another, another is this is this a rich thing? Question. Enormous model rockets. Yeah, maybe it is just a model rocket and not a, a, a rocket to launch Garrett into outer space. Can you actually purchase rockets that large for your child? Um, let's Google it and find out. Well, there's one that's seven foot four inches. Yep, seven foot four inch model rocket. That's amazing. What is the largest model rocket? The largest amateur rocket ever launched and recovered successfully was 1,648 pounds. Powered by nine motors. Well, okay. So maybe it is just a model rocket. Although we will we'll learn a little bit more in future episodes about what exactly Neil and JT are doing. Kind of, because it's never very clear, but it becomes a little more clear. Oh, excellent. <laughs> excellent. So my my swan count for the episode, actual swans, 16. Wow. Other swans, two. So total of 18 swans this episode. I wrote down <laughs> unnecessary swan-shaped object, Mr. Walker's periscope, and then my notes continue, which sounds like the title for an introspective mid-90s literary novel. <laughs> So, that's how my brain works, that's guys. Amazing. Nathan, how are you feeling having having come through your first episode of Swan's I Crossing? I am so enamored with how much I'm enjoying this train wreck. Oh, good. I cannot. I can't wait to watch how your mental health and your grip on sanity degrade as this show grinds on into it's early 90s aesthetic and cultural hell it gets so much worse and i'm so happy to watch how you react tell me what do you think will happen in the next episode what are your predictions for episode two episode two here's what's gonna happen helmet person takes off their helmet it's submarine girl and she like waves her hair around again she and her dad go about finding a home in swan's crossing 
Garrett makes it to the soda shop and Sydney's mom, Muffy, finds out that Garrett is back. I'm hoping we meet Garrett and Glory's dad that Sydney's mom hates. And I predict there will be less dancing in the next one and maybe a different science project for JT and Neil. Interesting. I am fascinated by some of your predictions. I am very amused by one of them because you're very wrong about it, but I won't tell you which one it is. Because it's going, it's going to blow your mind. On that note, I think we've reached the end of, of this adventure in Swan's Crossing. I am at Baldhead Blank Canvas on Instagram. And if you have the opportunity to support your local theaters during this time, we very much appreciate it. Yes, please support your local theaters. That's actually how Nathan and I met. We um, were in a theater production together and it was wonderful and fabulous and then right after that the pandemic happened and i have been jonesing to get back on stage with you buddy oh man it has just been way too long we gotta do it yes indeed okay well um thank you for joining me in swan's crossing i hope tonight the sun is safely locked in your family vault and it will rise again next week on another episode when we will find out just how wrong your predictions were (laughs) i look forward to it When Garrett walked towards that exploding rocket, he had a look of pure love on his face.